Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, it's Tom Quee here of So Recordings for the third episode of Live Fast, Die Ugly, The 100 Reasons Podcast. And as ever, first of all, massive thanks to all who are listening and pushing us up the charts all around the world. The response has been brilliant, and I've even had lots of fans of the band get in touch with me personally, saying how much they're enjoying the show. And if you're digging the show and want to help us out, you can leave a review on iTunes and Spotify, of course. And why not tell a fellow 100 Reasons Obsessive about the show, too? And be sure to follow the band on all their socials as outlined below. And excitingly enough, the boys have actually released a new song on the day of this podcast release. It's called Old School Way, and it's available now. So be sure to check it out on all platforms and make sure you pre-order the Glorious Sunset album and get your tickets for the upcoming late Feb, early March 2023 dates. So episode one was all about the prehistory of the band. Episode two was entirely on the masterpiece that is Ideas Above Our Station. And today, well, today we're exploring the band's second and third albums, Shatterproof Is Not A Challenge and Kill Your Own. And we'll be looking at how a band riding such a high at the time actually ended up being dropped by their label and how they came back from that with some of the greatest music of their careers. Joining us for the ride as ever are Colin, Andy Buse, The Andy, Larry and Blair, along with a new voice coming on board to close out the episode, Alan Day, a promoter for the band since the early days, and that's a particularly fascinating chat on the mechanics of promoting bands, and it's also of course packed with some terrific 100 Reasons tales. So, that's enough rambling. Let's start with Larry, talking about the second album and the changing musical scenes at the time. Moving then on to Shatterproof, the second record, you know, relocating to Cornwall to sort of finish writing and then recording again in New York. I mean, creatively, it feels like you didn't miss a step there. Like, were you guys just 
raring to go for the sophomore effort? I don't know. I don't agree with that. I think there was definitely some fat on that record mm. looking back. Um, I think we went down to Cornwall to surf. We should have gone somewhere where we would actually spend <laughs> yeah. more time writing and surfing. Um, I think we went in to record that record too early, and I think we were probably three songs short of making a really good album. And I think that that's a conversation that now I might have with a band if they were coming to me with the demos that we had at that time. Yeah. Or I'd like to think that I would. Um, so, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that record. It has... A couple of my, a couple of really good songs. It has some really good stuff on it, but it has also has some stuff that's starting to get a little bit confused, or is definitely a little bit half baked. I think. What would you point to there, like as an example, in your opinion? Eighty mile an hour. That song. It's just kind of nonsense. Mm. There's a song called. <laughs> there's a song. What, called one of your Great shortest Test. songs. One of your all time shortest songs. Though. One of my shortest. Mm. Well, I think it's because it had this whole lot of bit in it that I think Sardi told us to take out. Right. This ended up being, and. You know, I think he was sort of like, oh, what was he doing with this? Yeah. And a song called The Great Test, which was just, I'll find you light. And <laughs> Yes, it has the same some, sort of, some, yeah. I know what you mean. Some, and some, somebody, somebody convinced us to put that as a single and we shouldn't have done. There was a lot about that whole campaign that was not great. There's a song called My Sympathy, which I think is fucking great that's on that record. And... You know, if I had my time again, that should have been a single. And Stories of Unhappy Endings is one of your most celebrated. Stories of Unhappy Endings is an absolute banger as well. Mm. Like I said, there's some amazing stuff on that record, but there's also some stuff I'm just like, what the fuck were we thinking? (laughs) 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 That's just me being 44 and being able to be honest with myself. (laughs) But, you know, the um, obviously you you were just doing the 100 Reasons thing when you were writing, when you were recording, etc. But fair to say that when it was released in 2004, it was a kind of completely different rock scene, wasn't it, than you emerged from with the debut? Yeah, so we'd ridden that sort of crossover from old emo into new emo, and we hadn't gone with it stylistically. You know, by the time that second record came out, it was all fringes, eyeliner, guitars were up round people's nipples. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was, you know, um, it was skinny jeans and all that sort of stuff. And we were definitely still very much in a sort of 90s bootcut jeans, didn't really give a fuck about what we'd look like world. And that whole emo thing, which at that time was being made very, very popular by, you know, sort of Thursday, taking back Sunday, mm-hmm. the Lost Profits, not that we should mention their name um and that whole thing definitely left us behind or we didn't go with it because we just had no interest in going with it so i think the second record we made which in a way was even more stripped back and earthier than the first one was from a sort of trend point of view in rock music i'd say exactly the wrong thing to do if you wanted to be successful (laughs) (laughs) Because everything was going very much in the other. Everything else was going back towards, you know, hair metal, basically. Yeah. And we stayed in Pearl Jam for Ghazi land. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> very much on our own. It's a great land, I mean. Uh, well, yeah, it is. But, you know, at the, at, at the time, it sort of yeah. um, definitely put you out in the cold a little bit. On to Colin now, who speaks about the realities of a label supporting you. 
working on the second record and the band getting dropped. So am I right in thinking that this was where you relocated to Cornwall, basically to finish writing the second album, Shatterproof is Not a Challenge? Yeah, so we spent a bunch of time down there um, with a guy, I believe, called Joe Partridge, who had like a studio, so it was like a live-in place. It was really nice, just a lovely part of the world, and just, yeah, go away for some of the summer. And I think we did some festival shows and stuff. Mm. Um, but sort of primarily, I think, sort of writing, you know, took place down there, and that was just really nice because, it was like I say, it was a, a live-in place. So, yeah, we just went there, we wrote wrote a bunch of songs and it was quite nice because previously what we were doing was although where we wrote the first record was very good with time you could kind of almost spend as much time there as you really wanted you're sort of traveling to and from and then there's something really quite nice about thinking right I'm gonna sleep whatever oh someone's got a good idea let's all get up and just go to the next room and and do something about it and I quite like that spontaneity that's quite cool so that's quite nice about that sort of residential writing and recording and we were just, you know, doing our, you know, demoing and stuff there as well, which was cool. It was kind of a different landscape that you guys were coming into then with the second record. Like it was post the rock revolution, you know, where people like guitars a bit more and stuff like that. Did you feel that? Were you? I know, I know like you, you've said before, like you just wrote songs because you like, you know, the genre of music that you write and you're very comfortable in that. But was there any consciousness on your part or on a label's part? Or Because obviously we know what happens uh, after the album's released and we'll get to that. But was there any sort of sentience there was there any kind of awareness of the world you're releasing it into or I think there's I don't think so really I mean the thing is is when you're sort of doing that you kind of almost exist in a bubble to a certain amount and I think the thing is is the moment you sort of I think the moment sometimes when you try to it's not to say don't acknowledge what else has gone on around you because I think you kind of should you don't necessarily have to change and mold yourself around that and I think that you know the moment you start getting into that oh well that's happening now I'm going to change and I'm going to do a little bit of that and do a bit of that. If it's not a natural evolution for you creatively, then you shouldn't do it. <laughs> and I think that's the thing for us when we're writing. We, we weren't worried about what everybody else was doing. And you could argue in some cases, maybe that was to our detriment, but also I think with the changes that were going on at the label and everything as well, or looking to happen at the label around that time, you know, those were the kind of things where you thought, well, hang on a minute, we're possibly not going to get pushed as much And there's something that's really kind of quite positive about sort of being on a major or being on a label that's part of a major. And it's kind of where when you sign a record deal, there'll always be a minimum commitment. We'll make this many videos. We'll put this amount of money into marketing. You'll get this much tour support, those kinds of things. But if you really take off and you really start to do well, then a major that is behind you and backing you will add money to the pot, so to speak, so that that's not holding you back. Whereas I think by the time the second record was sort of not so much once it was recorded and it was kind of due for release, you know, we started to feel that that wasn't really going to be the case, you know, where if you start to do well, you get pushed and you start to take off in a certain territory. It was kind of a little bit like, no, you're not going to go there and do something about it. So then the, the label starts to kind of hold you back. And, you know, just to be really straight here, I don't think any of that happened under Blair McDonald. You know, and if anything was happening around that time, it's not because of him, um, because he's just always been amazing. But when you've got other people that are starting to come onto the scene and things like that, budgets can get allocated in different areas and stuff like that. You know, a friend of mine's band had some problems, I think, because, you know, the label they were on were signed, they were signed to, had to pay an artist a shed load of money 
and that they had to find the money from somewhere. So they effectively took it from the artists, <laughs> the other artists, you saw what I mean? They didn't take it from them physically, but budget that could have been spent on that artist was allocated to another artist to push that artist instead. So I think that when there were changes going on at the record labels, you could see that maybe the way that some of the money was being spent was being put into other areas where arguably you could say, well, could you not have just put it into us to help us do better? Because we were still touring, we we're still doing European tours and things like that. But we went and did a big, massive tour around Europe with Incubus doing arenas every night. But that wasn't due to the UK part of the label that was Sony in Germany, I believe, that really wanted to push us. So they were like, come on, get the guys out into Europe. Because I think they were trying to make it work. But it was all just a little bit too difficult, I think. The album was recorded in New York at Magic Shop again. Did New- I mean, obviously it must have on some level, but how different did New York feel compared to when you were first there? I don't think it felt, it only felt different because it wasn't a strange city anymore. Yeah. So, you know, we felt very comfortable there. Um, we'd made friends there from like the first time and we toured mm. with bands from there, you know, so it was easy. It was just going, it was really chilled out, really nice, you know, hanging out doing things yeah so I just think and also by that time we weren't as a friend of mine would say all shiny and new so we were a little more sort of worldly you know we knew a little bit more um and so when we went there we just you know went and got on with the job and did a good job you did do a great job obviously like one of the things that I've said earlier is just how consistent your output is and how impressive that is and like how it's just so you guys like there were no kind of issues then like in terms of the writing of the album it wasn't difficult to, like ideas were flowing well the album was written before we went so yeah. that was kind of one of the things it's it's tough to kind of unless you've kind of got that sort of built into the recording process it's quite tough to go to another country and go right we haven't finished the record yet but we're going to go yeah. and record it um because, you know, some producers, you know, can be quite expensive. With that sort of in mind, everything was kind of written. I think the only thing was one of the songs on it was a little bit, needed a bit of work, um, which we had some help with, obviously, with Dave Sardi, you know, sort of working out, you know, what it was. I think it was the point where the musicians in the band were showing off a little bit, (laughs) kind of like, look what I can do, rather than this is a good song. But the ideas were there to make it a good song. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it was a little bit, yeah, it was fine. It's hard to say. I think we just felt a little bit more, even sort of more comfortable with what we were doing because, you know, we didn't feel like we had anything to prove. We just felt like we had to go and record a good record again. It was released on the 1st of March 2004, sold 65,000. It reached 20 in the UK album chart, number one on Radio One's rock album chart. Like, how did you feel overall about the release at the time? I don't really know. <laughs> kind of very hard to actually sort of remember that yeah of course it's not it's almost like you know when you're doing the first record it, that's like everything's all new and it's all exciting and stuff and everything else but once you sort of start to get into sort of your second record and and what have you you're just um a lot more sort of casual about it you're just hoping it's going to do well and what you're really hoping is that you're playing shows and, and people are coming out to the shows and I think that's the most important thing and I think the first sort of run of shows we did sort of coming back they were really good I think we again we sort of felt more mature the second record was more mature a little bit less scrappy mm. um not that the first album you know I, I like it because it is scrappy if that makes sense oh yeah um but I think the second record was just sort of a bit more refined but you know people come to the shows we were on tour we were doing what we wanted to be doing so yeah it was cool there was a show on the tour at that time that was cancelled by a fire alarm do you remember that 
I do because that was at the Glasgow QMU, but it wasn't cancelled. Actually, that was third oh, it album. says it says London here, two thousand and three. Oh, just on your website, but may I mean, yeah, maybe that could be incorrect. No, no, no you could be right. We did yeah. have a fire alarm during a show once, and that was on the Kill Your Own tour. Um, but right. maybe it was the I think we did some kind of smaller shows that maybe it was the Yulu or something. I think it was, yes, it was, Yulu, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. Yulu, yeah. So I think, yeah, that was cancelled, but yeah, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> and was that like what was that like mid set? Just it comes on because I've, I've been to a lot of gigs, but I've never actually had that happen. That's wild. No, I think I can't remember what happened at the Yulu exactly. Maybe someone else can say it better than me. I just seem to recall there being that show sort of being cancelled. I think we had two nights booked in. So, yeah, I think there was some sort of fire issue. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things I, yeah. I kind of vaguely remember happening, but it's about as far as I go memory-wise. And it's quite funny, actually, because I've been digging through, finding all the interviews I can of stuff from you and the members. And there's one from Paul here. And this is around this era. And your niece, I believe, commented on it. And it's the only comment there. And I think she was quite young when she put it. She says, I think 100 Reasons are really good. And my mom, stepdad, sister, grandma, granddad, and nearly everyone in my family likes them. We really like my uncle Colin because he rocks. Yeah, I do remember <laughs> that. That's quite sweet. <laughs> Lots of it. And I, I guess I want to just segue from that into like your family and stuff like that. Like, you know, what did like all your relatives think? Obviously, they'd be happy for you. But like, that must have been wonderful for them as well. Yeah, I mean, everyone's proud, you know. But I think also, you know, you're, you're kind of doing something that isn't on the beaten track either. So it, it's quite a tough thing and I won't go into it in this podcast, but, you know, I've had relationships with people in my family that have been sort of quite fractious right. over the years anyway. So in honesty, for some of them, I wouldn't have given a shit what they thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas the ones that did matter, it was it was nice. And it's not, again, like you're sort of seeking their approval. I think a lot of it sort of came actually from my wife's side of the family when, you know, we went and played the Portsmouth Pyramids and stuff and her dad who's just like you know sadly passed away but just one of the most amazing human beings ever you know he's there and stuff and hanging out and you know it's like oh well see my son-in-law isn't just wasting his time (laughs) you know but but you know I say that you know coming from him it was a loving thing from him you know um so there was things like that and you know it's like you say a lot of people you know say I'm in a band and they find it very difficult to sort of take it seriously but I had somebody the other day that was saying you know I don't want my kid to grow up and be a musician or something like that and I thought do you listen to music and that person would likely say yes and I'm like well could you imagine if everybody who made music listened to people like you there wouldn't be any (laughs) you know it's like people have to go off and do this kind of thing um so for me I wasn't really sort of in a position where I was sort of compromising or looking to, to have that approval I think mostly people just thought okay, he's doing this thing and it's working for him, you know, because I think a lot of people, you know, they look at somebody who wants to be creative and they they don't see it as something that always has a a future, mm. um, you know, and arguably, you know, in some cases they, that is absolutely right. But, you know, being in this band has served me very well. Even when I've not been in the band, it's helped me. So it's been a really, really positive experience. So I think that's where sort of people come from. But yeah. People were happy. People were glad I was doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> and getting into 2004 now, I mean, you know, we, we we spoke just now about potential amazing triplet bill with Good Charlotte and Newfound Glory. But here was an actual one with you guys, Senses Fail and Biffy Clyro. 
I mean, a mouthwatering prospect, especially in 2004. I mean, Biffy were just kind of, you know, in their naysayers. I'm going to have been around for quite a while at that point anyway, but like uh, what a set of three bands to be on tour. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, like the Biffy guys are just wonderful human beings. And, you know, I think that because we've both been doing stuff at around the same sort of time, there's a bit of a sort of a kinship there. And we've already seen them a couple of times, I think, even before they came on tour with us. And I think they just finished recording one of their records. It might have been like the Vertigo Bliss or something. But it was just, um, we were trying to get them to play it to us without them sort of, you know, leaking it anywhere. (laughs) We tried to go, go on, play it, play it. Um, But they were amazing, really, really nice. And it was just just brilliant. I mean, it came to a kind of a bit of a a short end, sadly, because I know um, Simon's mum, you know, she, I think she passed away wow. um, on that tour. So he had to leave about two days before the end. I think I recall being in Ireland or something. And that was, you know, very sad. But up to that point, you know, you're just touring with sort of like the best people. And you can't, yeah, you can't argue with that. That People like that just make it really, really easy. So yeah, it's a good time. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, they just headline download and they've headlined Reading and Leeds and they're a ginormous band. I mean, one of their songs was covered for the X Factor number one. I mean, that's not as big as what I just said, but you know what I mean? They're, they're in the consciousness. Yeah. Like they're one of those bands. Like it's yeah. it's incredible what they've achieved. Yeah, and they should. They should achieve yeah. it. You know, they, they're a brilliant band. They've always really? been brilliant. They've always been really cool. Um, you know, I'm a fan. Yeah, <laughs> so, hell yeah. You know, um, and yeah, and they were just amazing. And when you go and see them play, they're brilliant every time. So... I mean, I think me and the Andy went to see them when they did the acoustic thing at the Roundhouse for the MTV thing. Yes. And I just thought, why go into that? It's one of the best things I've ever seen. Like set design, songs chosen and the way they worked acoustically and stuff. Just incredible. And and I think that's just always been, again, just they're just one of those bands that's just always cool and just, you know, and they've always got time for people. Um you know, I do every now and then, very rarely, as Simon will attest to. But, you know, if I drop him a text message and say, you know, what you're doing, I don't try to blag tickets from him or anything. But how you doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, he'll, you know, he'll always respond and stuff. And how you doing, brother, and stuff. And it's the same with um, James and Ben as well. Just really good human beings. Yeah, you can't, can't knock that. Around this time then, the album's reaching silver status. The tour's successful, as we've been saying. But it was cut short due to Sony BMG dropping the band, right? That was, um, we were on tour with Incubus around Mm. Europe at the time. And our manager came into our dressing room in Paris. um, And he was effectively saying, you know, that they're not going to continue. They're not going to option another record. And that was when, sadly, Blair had moved on. um, And a lot of the team had moved on as well. So, I mean, thing in fairness to our manager was he, he looked, he managed our expectation really well. So we kind of weren't 100% surprised. And I think that when he kind of got the news and stuff, he already had sort of a, a plan in place, you know, as to what we're going to try and do next. And I think, you know, so he's like, right, we're going to get back off this tour. We're going to finish the tour and go home. Going to write the best record yet. Right. And, we're going to, and that's what we're going to do. All right. And we're going to get another record deal. Just don't worry about it. So on and so forth. And I don't think we were worried about it because I think we'd already sort of known that things weren't working out too well with Sony um, and they weren't going to. So, yeah, it wasn't. And, and the thing, the thing is, in fairness to our manager, very good at sort of, you know, not trying to sell as a dream and go, well done, guys, you know, the top of the charts or whatever you're doing here, you're going to be rock gods forever. You know, he always said, you know, if you get to make another record, that's great. If you get to another one, even better. If you get to four or five records, well done. But don't 
don't think that you're going to do it forever. And he didn't mean that in a negative way. No. It, what he did was it always kept us very grounded where he thought, well, do you know what? We always appreciate what we're doing. We also appreciate the position we're in um, and to be able to do something. And yeah, so when we ended up sort of being dropped, we were in Paris, I think. I think it was with Incubus. Or maybe we were with, no, I think we were, oh, I can't remember. But anyway, we knew it was happening. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, you were, we were you were playing Le Zenith, yeah, with Incubus. It was May, yeah. late May of 2004. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so we did that and then we sort of, okay, we got home. Um, and then we just started writing and writing and writing, um, which I think is what sort of became Kill Your Own. You also played Reading and Leeds a few months later, okay. and that's with the infamous for sale sign, right? The backdrop. Yes. Uh, yeah, we did that. And we just thought that would be a really good stunt to have. Yeah, it's great. You know, and I think it worked, kind of raised awareness and that kind of thing. I think a few people left some voicemail messages and sent some texts and things like that. But it was just, you know, it was kind of letting people know that, you know, we I'm not going to be horrible about Sony because there's just no point. But what I will say is that our time with them had run its course <laughs> and it was just good to let people know. And I think people quite like that because we'd always been a bit punk rock anyway. So it was a little bit sort of anarchistic, I think. Um, and, you know, what a better place to do it than on the main stage of Reading Festival. Yeah, and for people, there's actually a clip of this on YouTube, you guys playing Silver there. It's an unbelievable performance as well. And it's just great to see the old school Reading and Leeds. I mean, it's not even that old, really, comparatively, but in terms of everything being covered today on iPlayer, you can access whatever, like, you know, it's one of those things. It's got the old ITV2 logo in the top left yes. as well. That, like, stretched one that everyone can remember. But, but yeah, if people aren't aware, you're on the front. It's kind of Spartan stage. And the back, it's like a pitch black backdrop with, like, um, you know, ripped paper, like a classified ad, basically, saying for sale, 100 reasons. And, uh, I, I, yeah, it, it's superb. And the crowd are just baying as well. Like, it is an unbelievable performance. Catching up with Andy Buse now, who shares his memories of the Shatterproof era and thoughts on the band getting dropped by their label. Moving on then, I mean, you were just saying, you know, tour album, tour album. So Shatterproof, the sophomore effort, which, you know, from my perspective, from a fan's perspective and from, you know, reading a lot of reviews online, most of us consider it fairly in step with the monolith that is your debut. But I've had a varied response from the band members that I've spoken to about this album. Like, what, what's your thoughts on it? What are your memories on the record? What, what are your opinions on the batch of songs? Yeah, so because we'd had such a successful debut album, I think there was a certain amount of pressure to not, not recreate that record as such, but kind of keep in step with, with what we were doing, you know, to write some more hit singles and carry on as we were. Mm. And we were actually lucky enough at that point to be in a position where we could go away. We, we actually went away to Cornwall and stayed in a yeah. residential studio. It was just the five of us basically down there writing in a, in a studio. And we were coming out of really interesting things, um, really good ideas, I think. And I, I really, really enjoyed that process. Um, it was a really laid back vibe. I remember just waking up in the mornings, going for a surf, eating a Cornish pasty and then getting in the studio. You know, that's, that's basically how we started our day. And then we would, we would write all day, all night sometimes. And we were coming out with some really good stuff. I think that the album is quite mature in the way it's written and the songs themselves are quite well structured and, and the ideas are, are very good. But there, I don't think there's really any singles on it, what would be considered a single, you know, which is kind of what major record labels are looking for. They want, they want something that they can put on the radio and they can put on MTV at the time, that is. Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't think 
looking back that we actually wrote any what would be considered kind of hit singles on that album it was more of an album that was constructed as an album you know mm. um all the songs were equal but it was um there's some songs on there that i i don't listen to that that well i don't listen to any of our records very often but when i do when a song pops up um i think the album sounds amazing and there's uh, yes. i can't remember the name of the song now it's, i'm gonna have to look it up real quick hang on hey it's all good just put some some lift music on <laughs> i'll just put glorious sunset on and put glorious sunset. yeah that's it yeah oh God, I, haven't, I haven't even got it on my itunes you know yeah there, there is a song on that record that i'm really proud of and i can't remember what it's called <laughs> <laughs> i just cut all of this out of this interview but anyway that i think that's that that album it uh, was was born out of being in quite a comfortable place and we were able to we had the time to um to go and just almost write what we wanted to write and we were kind of left to our own devices and i, I actually quite like the record now at the time it was a, it was a little little bit tainted because it didn't perform as well as they wanted it to yeah um you know but i i think it's a good i think it's a really good record i mean I yeah I mean, stuff like still be here Great tune, yeah. Really good song. Makeshift as well, I really like. Harmony, like, yeah, I, I agree. The Great Test, obviously, Stories of Unhappy Endings, kind of arguably the quote-unquote hit, you know, from the record, or definitely the most memorable song. It would have been, but yeah, that wasn't a single in the end, was it? No, no, but I think that's probably the one that most people can recall from that. And um, obviously, the story did have an unhappy ending, a little bit obvious segue there, but didn't all go too well with Columbia, and, you know, from what I gather, obviously, it was personnel changes and, and, and Blair not being there, etc. But, yeah, think... you know, kind of a, a, a difficult pill to swallow, perhaps, for, for still a young band getting dropped on the sophomore album. Yeah, it was a little bit, you know, it was a strange time as well, because we, we knew that, that maybe, like I said, we, I know, I know, I, I think we knew that we'd written a record that was, that would have been of an acquired taste. You know, it wasn't, it didn't have big hit singles on it it was it was a it was an album and i think the there was a few things that had happened around that time that we weren't really pleased with and i think the record label weren't really pleased with us and like you said after blair had left blair was someone who really championed our band and always has done and he's been involved with us i mean from from the moment columbia were involved blair was involved and he's been involved since as well um, heavily and um, once he wasn't a part of that anymore um, I think we kind of lost interest as well <laughs> I think they they were kind of losing interest in us and we were kind of losing interest in them so I think that when by the time it had come to a point where we were no longer on Columbia they were no longer our record label it was almost I don't think we really minded too much Um I think we thought to ourselves, right, well, we're just going to crack on now and write another record and get another record deal, hopefully, and then carry on. You know, I think that was the mentality we had at that point. Because what did we do after that? I'm trying to think what tours we were doing back then. We did a big arena tour of Europe with Incubus around that time. Um, I think the tour probably ended up Reading and Leeds Festival. I don't, I'm not sure we did much more after that, actually. And I think we 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 went back into the studio to sort of start writing again quite soon, mm. and, and um, shop around for another record label. You know, I think that's 
but I don't remember taking it too badly. I, I, I don't remember ever thinking it was a really bad thing. I, I, I remember thinking that maybe, maybe it was for the best at that point, and we, we could then maybe go on and do another re record and get a record label that, that wanted to do stuff with us. Time for the other Andy now, the Andy, who reflects on this period in the band's history. You know, beyond the massive success of the debut, you know, the band sort of gathering pace at this point, did you feel like in any way there was a sophomore slump with Shatterproof? Because, you know, I, I just heard from other the band members, you know, certain reactions to it, certain convictions behind it. Like, how do you view the record and the pantheon of the band? Well, it's... It's interesting. So obviously we were riding on a crest of a wave with the first record and all that and did, you know, loads of shows and just, just, mm. you know, enjoying it and stuff like that. And then we um, obviously were given the opportunity to go and just like go places and just try and take our little bit more time to actually write this second record. And we ended up down in Devon for a lot of it in various like cottages and places that you yeah. just do up. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting. It's like, I think it was definitely the, the, the I think, reason why people were, were a little bit more, like, not standoffish, but more, like, interested about the second record was it was definitely darker. So it's much darker, a little bit less sort of, polished around the edges sort of thing and it's not like it oh we did it with a different producer we, we went back to america and did it we went back and did it with uh, dave sardi again mm. back at, in in new york again and um it's, there's definitely a darker vibe to it and but like they still have like elements of poppiness and stuff like that but maybe it was kind of I don't know the best way to think of it. Maybe it was kind of like uh, we needed to do something like that instead of just redoing the first album again. We needed we needed to have that sort of some kind of actual audio separation, so it wasn't just ideas of us ideas above our station two. You know, like you don't nobody no band wants to do the same album twice. Do you know what I mean? So. Mm. And I think that was kind of like a reaction to the first record is kind of what made the second record. And, you know, I've had quite a few people now say, oh, I absolutely love that record. And I was yeah, like, well, yeah. that's brilliant. You know, it still sold okay. You know, I, I think it was a bit of a bitter taste in the mouth because unfortunately by that point, like, poor Blair basically was yeah. no longer at Columbia and... Um, we just ended up with a numbers person, and it just—it was just the—it was the, the the difference from when we were doing ideas with the team to the team that we had when we were doing uh, Shatterproof. It was just—it was almost a completely different roster of people, and it was just, a lot of them were literally just—it's all numbers, you know. You're just a number, you know. Make some make some sales or, or go away. Do you know what I mean? It's just there was no hearts to it in a way. Um, so that kind of, in a way, if, if, if say hypothetically, if Blair's still been there, still had a good team behind us and stuff like that, maybe we would have thought better of the second record, but because it was, I think it's everything to do with it, kind of made us go a bit, oh, okay. So, um, 
yeah. So, but uh, so it got to the point like when I, th- I think we were actually on tour with Muse, I think it was, and we're like we'd or in, it's either Muse or Incubus in Europe, and we're like we got the phone for the message through. It's like you've been dropped. And we're like brilliant because <laughs> it's like what's the point of being on a big, lovely major label if you got nobody there actually giving an ass about you? It's just it's no point. Not a point at all. And that sort of, that sort of segued into the infamous for sale backdrop, right? Yeah, it's like um, obviously classic self-deprecation. Uh, we it's great. I love that. it. Obviously, it was like we actually sorted out like a like a SIM card with the number, so it was a real number. And like, but like I think the best one is just like, I'll give you, I'll I'll, I'll buy you for like a coconut pasty or something. I think someone's texted us. It was just, <laughs> it was it was, just, it was funny. It was really funny. So, but like you know, I'm, I'm sure it went over a lot of people's heads. <laughs> <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quick chat with Blair now on the band being let go from their label and his opinions on the matter. You know, Colin has said that the band's relationship soured with the label when you left as you know, you were kind of the reason that you signed in the first place. Mm. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I suppose I'm maybe the not, not the right guy to ask. Um, but certainly uh, our relationship, my relationship with the boys and uh, with the band and tank, the manager was very strong. And mm. uh, I, I was let go by Columbia and and they were uh, kind of, and so when that relationship is broken, um, it's, you know, it's, it's like any, it's like a personal relationship. It's difficult for them to just pick that up with somebody else who has not been involved in their career at all to that point, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level, not been involved in their music, not ha- doesn't have an understanding of what, they've been through to get to where they are um, and perhaps just doesn't have the passion for what they do, uh, which are, you know, I certainly did at the time. And it was, it was kind of heartbreaking for me to leave Columbia records and leave hundred reasons. That was, um, that was, that was a tough time personally for me to, to have to walk away from that. And I think, uh, although you know, I was as encouraging as I could be with them to keep their heads down and work hard and deliver a, a second album, which I have to say, 
I think they did in spades. I yeah. think Shatterproof is not a challenge, is a fantastic record. Hell yeah. Um, but it wasn't just me. I mean, when I left Columbia, a number of the team were kind of uh, either left not long after me or were spun off into different roles and different responsibilities. So the whole team, you know, the, 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 the promo team who had worked Ideas Above Our Station everywhere at XFM, you know, Zane Lowe at the time had been a huge supporter, uh, Radio One, uh, and even get, landing them top of the pops. Uh, everything was rearranged and moved around. And not long after that, Sony went into a merger with BMG and the whole thing became a little bit bent out of shape. And uh, I think when you combine that with the fact that the bands, uh, I suppose I had been the band's champion within the company, was gone. It was, um, again, hindsight's a great thing, but it was maybe inevitable that it was it was going to, the, the band were going to get uh, disenfranchised and feel that they didn't have the label behind them. Um, so, yeah. It it was very it, it was a, a a sad thing to be to to watch from the outside yeah. uh, the way that kind of disintegrated, um, and who knows perhaps if if somebody else had taken over or if I had been around to uh, to oversee the next record and 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 the, the team with me, maybe we could have made you know things would have turned out a little bit differently. But say la vie, such yeah, as the music of co- business. Of course, of course. And, we, you know, we're still celebrating this great band and, you know, yeah. they still, still went on to make some incredible music. What did you make of the uh, the for sale sign at the Reading and Leeds backdrop? You know what? I never noticed it. Oh, did you not? Oh, OK. So that's kind of just in my research. That's marked in the 100 Reasons law. That is kind of, you know, oh one of their God. big things. Have you not seen it well, yeah, on, the main, yeah. on the main stage? On the main stage. It's just like a, a classified ad in the background just saying, you know, band for sale. Yeah. <laughs> well maybe that uh, yeah i say i didn't notice it if i maybe i did and i've forgotten about yeah, it yeah, years yeah. Later, but but um uh it's maybe ringing a bit of a bell although i have to say and I, this is you know just just to just to beg myself up i was on the main stage from the side of the stage watching the band when they did that so it was behind me so i couldn't yeah. i couldn't see it <laughs> Well, with Larry now again, speaking about Sony BMG, the Reading and Leeds backdrop, and some more insight into America. Sony BMG, dropping the band, despite the successful tours, despite the album re- reaching silver status, like, the impact yeah. on the band must have, I mean, obviously was seismic, but that must have been, you know, quite a shock. They they couldn't wait to drop us after Blair left. Yeah. So Blair, 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 who signed us, who you've also spoken mm-hmm. to, He's still a friend. He 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 signed us, uh, and at the time he was a manager director. It was Columbia Records, um, which is Sony Columbia. Uh, so, and he signed us. Um, and for the first record, we were his band. And when you're the MD's band, it's great. Um, uh, second record came around. He left, and it was all new people. And they, the option had been picked up. And they basically paid for the record, put the record out, and then just stopped everything. Um, so they paid a load of tour support. We went out supporting Muse around Europe for must have been two or three months. 
Um, and it was actually on the last date of that Muse tour in the Zenith in Paris where we found out we'd been dropped, having just spent about 60 grand in tour support going on tour with them. Mm. So, yeah, they couldn't wait to drop us. They'd never worked the records internationally. They had two rock, Columbia had two rock bands. They had us and they had Lost Profits. And they went with Lost Profits to promote internationally, which commercially I'd probably say was the right decision. But that meant that, you know, we never got released in America. We got released in Europe, but only just to get it in the shops. Like we were going around tours on Europe and we were in Germany, we were in France, we were in Italy, and there was no one coming to interview us. You know, there was no one working it. None of the local press officers were working it. You could be cynical and say that in a, you know, in that old school music industry way, they'd they'd signed the band in Britain that they wanted to work internationally. It was a lot of profits, and they'd also signed a competition and sat on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> which which is not beyond the morals of uh, of of major record companies, but it it definitely had that feel about it to me, and it, it does retrospectively as well. Just to go back slightly, you mentioned um, being overseas and touring and stuff like that. You only had the singular American show or appearance at South by Southwest. Yeah. What do you recall of that? We played, we were really angry. What were we, we were angry about something at that gig. What were we angry about? This is another record, though, because it was on that second record. Mm. We were angry because Newfound Glory, who were massive at the time in America, a pop punk band, had offered to take us on tour around America and because they really loved us as a band, not as people, they loved the band. They wanted us to come and tour around the US, and we were trying to get to a sport for it from from Sony, being like, "Look, this newfound glory, they want to take us on tour, give us to a sport." They were just saying no, and they wouldn't even agree to release the record there, even though we had this tour lined up. And newfound glory were trying to make it so cheap; they were offering to truck our gear, they were offering to take us on their bus to try and get it as cheap as possible for us. And Sony were just like, "No." And it was under that cloud that we went to South by Southwest. So I remember us being very, very angry <laughs> at the time, going to do our only ever year. So uh, the support band was The Darkness. Yes. Which was fun. And then the band after us was British Sea Power. I don't remember that. Well, they're now known as Sea Power. Uh, they are now known as Sea Power. At the time, it was British Yeah, they Power. soundtracked one of my all-time favorite video games, Disco Elysium, just recently. They're, they're a really good band. Yeah. Yeah. I remember they had a lot of trees on stage and were throwing furniture around. Oh. That's all I remember about them. <laughs> Rock stars. <laughs> so it was, a, it, it was a very, very strange gig where we just sort of flew to Texas, played a gig and went out and got pissed and were all very angry. Um, I, the one fun thing that happened that night was Rad, who I mentioned earlier, our booking agent, um, I ended up in a tattoo parlor with him at about three in the morning and he was absolutely out of his mind and decided he wanted to get a tattoo. So he dragged us to a tattoo parlor. He walked in, pointed at the first three things on the wall and pointed at his arm. And this guy sits down and goes about tattooing him. The guy's tattooing him has obviously been awake for about three days. It's what they do in South by Southwest. They just jack up the prices and they stay awake for as long as possible. So he was like falling asleep whilst he was tattooing Rad's arm. (laughs) Uh, That's the only thing I really remember about that gig. I can't remember really playing the gig. It was in like a smallish bar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just remember... Yeah, Rad got bad tattoos, and we were all angry. Well, pro- That's what probably, I about that. probably the uh, probably the most memorable <laughs> gig. You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. There could be other ones from this year, but was your performance at Reading uh, with the infamous for sale backdrop 
Can you provide a bit, yeah. bit more insight on that? Because I, I love that. What a moment. I think that might, I'm going to claim that as my idea. I think it might be. Right. Um, yeah. So it was like, we'd just been dropped. We got a silver album. We'd just been dropped and we're still playing Ready Main Stage. That was actually the highest up the bill I think we ever played it. And so we're like, right, let's get this banner made. Let's make it look like the classified page of a newspaper. And in the middle, it's going to say, for sale, 100 reasons, one careless owner and a phone number, um, which was a prepaid phone number mm. that we had backstage, which, you know, just went into complete meltdown, to be honest. Um, but I thought it was quite a good dig at, <laughs> you know, admitting that we'd sold ourselves, admitting that it had gone badly, but also, you know, making the valid um, accusation that they'd done a shit job. Um, possibly on purpose. <laughs> so it was quite it was quite a good sort of three sixty degree dig, I thought, that poster. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 unbelievable really. And the fact that it's just kind of scored out of the black as well, like it's been torn and it just revealed this thing like this scar and yeah. you know, I love that. But I mean it must be wild for you because the YouTube video is online, so so I've I've seen it. I'm looking at a screen grab of it now in front of me. Like yeah. You guys played massive stages. Like, you guys were popular, and you played yeah. huge festival stages. Tens of thousands of people going wild for your music. Like, I mean, I don't know. Did you ever, do you ever like, revisit that? Or did you just kind of like, yeah, that was just part of my 20s, you know? Well, it kind of was just part of my 20s, yeah. to be honest. I don't want to downplay it, but also it's like it it did happen. That's my memories of, of being at that age. Mm. Um, and it does... I don't know. It doesn't seem that strange to me because it's like, you know, I've stayed in, in music and I work with people now who do those sorts of shows and bigger. And it's just, I, it's just what I do. (laughs) It's what I did. It's the world that I'm still in. So it's not that weird to me, but you know, I do, I do love that it is weird to a lot of people and I obviously love dragging it out sometimes. (laughs) Because it's just a fun thing, but it's just, it's just, it's just my normal normal life. <laughs> the Andy now is back, and we're talking about the band's stunning third album, "Kill Your Own." Obviously, morale would have been quite low then, but it, but it seems like you guys just kept going on. Like like you said earlier, you've always wanted to make music, right? Were you just undeterred at that point that you were going to get signed again and? make more music i don't know what we thought we would do at the time like and then obviously uh luckily v2 came along mm. and they were like because there were some people who we had worked with before that ended up working for v2 and obviously pro- pro- approached us to come on board and and then we ended up yeah we, like, we were like we kind of had like the fire back up our ass again sort of thing like um, yes like we, we can still do this you know we like like this this we're like, we don't have to just give up. We can keep going sort of thing, and then, which is brilliant. And I think that new sort of vibe definitely sort of came across. And that's, you know, that, and then we ended up with Kill Your Own. So like coming out and and there was like a definitely a new vigour to the band. And I think for me, that's definitely, I, I uh, funnily enough, I actually prefer Kill Your Own to Ideas actually because I think it's a bit. A lot more of people complete. do. A lot of people do actually. It's funny that you say that. What What is it about Kill it's, Your Own? The best way I describe it is it's kind of like a nice 
50-50 mix of the first two albums. Mm. So you've got the poppy element, but you've also got the more darker element, but we managed to do it really well. I, th- I think that, that album, we kind of just nailed it. And it was Larry's first time producing us. So he had like a, you know, he had his uh, producer cap on and he wanted to really make a big difference. And obviously he'd learned a lot from Dave Sardi and he had a lot to prove in that respect. And, you know, it, I think it's a great, I, I love that album. I've, I've got fond memories of recording it. You know, yeah. I've fond memories of like playing gigs for it. It was just, it was just a good time. That was a good, very good time for the band. So Larry was actually quoted around the time of his release, talking about how it's quite an angry record and how, there's quite a few sort of twisted moments in it as well. And it, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me as well, Andy, that I'd not really brought up with the other guys is you like, you know, were a rare thing as a band because you really put out a lot of quality B-sides or just a lot of B-sides yeah. full stop. But you really did that when, you know, most bands kind of hadn't done that, you know, for the most part. People think of like, you know, I don't know, Oasis, Beatles, you know, all that sort of era, whatever. But the fact that I'm even looking at Kill Your Own now there were six B-sides released for that album. I think the one thing that we were never shy of is is just... I, I think you always write your best stuff like when you just keep writing stuff. So mm. I think bands struggle. I think the biggest struggle a lot of bands have, especially when they've got like between album one and two, is you've got all the time in the world to write your first album. And then when it comes to the second album... You might not have as much time. And the problem is also if you say, for instance, your first album's done really well, you spent all this time on the road promoting the records and not really, well, a lot of bands, you know, they kind of don't really do much writing. So you kind of, in a way, not totally forget, but you kind of forget a little bit how how to do it. So one thing that always kept stuff fresh for us is that, you know, when we weren't on the road, we were a lot of the time in the studio just writing songs constantly, you know. And obviously that meant that we had a shed ton of <laughs> B-sides. <laughs> and it was always the songs that we really liked. And there were some songs that, are, you know, would have sounded great on an album, but then at the same time, we literally like, probably wouldn't have fit on an album. So, because you've got, I guess you've got to think of an album as the whole thing, you know, so... As like one thing, does it go on this record? And and then you go, well, yeah, I guess it doesn't. So then you go, okay, well, we'll still record it, and it'll be a B side sort of thing. So so that yeah, so we constant, we're all we were always trying to record and, and write as much as possible, and it kind of kept, you know, it kept the sort of the the juices flowing for like music, music and stuff like that. So. Well, I mean, just, yeah, the frequency of your output is extraordinary. You're at your third album now, and that's three albums in six years, and with all the B-sides thrown in as well. I mean, it was a relentless pace. Well, as I said, we didn't really stop. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, but, you know, strike. I guess strike whilst the iron's hot is probably the best way to describe mm. that. With Andy Buse now for some more Kill Your Own Chat and his thoughts on Larry stepping up to a production role. So getting into the third record, Kill Your Own, which is even darker still. I mean, the first two are pretty dark. 
But it's a it's transitional record. You know, the last to feature Paul and the first to have Larry in the producer's chair. I mean, first of all, how was it having Larry there in the space of Dave Sardi? Uh, it was great, actually. Larry's um, Larry's been doing sound for years and years. Like he'd, he'd been he'd taken an interest in sound way before um, he was even in Jetpack or we were in 100 Reasons. So he vaguely knew what he was doing. Mm. Uh, We'd, we'd got some recording equipment during the first album campaign and we'd started doing um, demos for the second record with Larry recording it all. That was for our second record. So by the time we'd got to do the third record, I think he was pretty well honed with his skills to, um, to take it on. I know it was a massive thing for him um, and fair play for him to do it because that's probably a lot of pressure on him. Um, but obviously... At that point, I mean, we're such close friends. You know, we live in each other's pockets for years. So Larry would, he wouldn't be kind of, he wouldn't hold back on anything. If he wanted to say something about the way uh, we were playing or something, he would just say it, you know, and we would take it because, you know, we were just good buddies. So I think it was actually quite nice to have Larry um, there producing and playing. Um, with, with regards to writing that album, it was... Um, by that point, we'd been writing all these songs in a, under a train arch in South London for the best part of a year, I think, maybe even longer. And I think that we'd, we'd become quite frustrated with how things were going. So I think that that album, there's a lot more, you can hear the frustration in it, I think. And yeah. uh, the songs are a little bit more, I guess they are a bit darker, yeah, and a bit more aggressive in the most for the most part but i think that that i actually think the third record is my favorite my personal favorite um we had a lot of time with that album to to make the songs perfect as far as we were concerned you know Um, and we'd worked on all of those songs like i say for probably a year it must have been about a year i can't remember when we actually recorded that record must have been sometime in 2005 i suppose so we would have been writing it for about a year anyway. And I think the songs were, were so well completed. Does that make sense? That they, were, yeah. they were complete songs. So when we were walking into the studio to record them, we knew exactly our parts. And we knew exactly what we were doing. And there wasn't a lot of creative process once we were recording it. Um, I really, really enjoyed playing drums on that album. Um, for me, personally, I think that's my favourite album from my drumming point of view um i did a lot of experimenting with different styles of drumming and different time signatures and different bits and bobs Mm. and i I found it very interesting to play and i think at that point again because we'd been playing with each other for so many years by then we were actually a a, you know pretty good little band and we were we were tight and we um yeah I, i just remember that that album the recording it was a really, really good process, really fun. Um, and it felt good. Yeah, it felt good. But I think, I think Colin, Colin and Larry maybe would, would elaborate more on, the, on their feelings of that record. I don't know about Colin's, um, his, his lyrics and things like that. I'm not really yeah. sure. You'd have to talk to him about that sort of thing. But for me, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process and I enjoyed playing on it. And around this around this time as well, I think you'll preview some of the songs on it is live at the Lemon Grove, 
which yeah. what what a live record andy like amazing sounding amazing production like i just think it, it's a fantastic testament to you guys as a live unit do you know what it, it's funny because I, I thought that when we were when we were a younger band kind of coming up through the ranks we we really really thrived on playing in those sort of places mm. that was the idea behind behind that that live album was to capture us smaller place i think that lemon grove holds around 500 people or something like that five or six hundred people and that that was a place where we felt so comfortable and it, it was um it's it's a great level to play at I, I i always loved it uh and so that was where we were at home you know that was our our kind of home <clears throat> our home gig playing to about 500 people we loved it i think that when we when we actually grew as a band and we started playing bigger halls and bigger venues it it takes on a whole different um it it's a whole different vibe when you're walking on stage you're, you're further away from the crowd yeah the sound is echoing around the room uh, it becomes more of a show you know you, you bring your own lights you bring your own you bring your own stuff and it becomes more of a show when you're playing those little clubs it, you play with all the stuff that's just there you can see everyone's right in front of you and it's just for me, I, I just find it a lot more fun to play those little clubs, um, and I'm really I'm glad that we decided to do a, a live album in in that that venue because that that venue is in um, Exeter University, right? It, it's like a little room just in Exeter University, and we've we've played there, I don't know, probably about five times over the years, and um, it's a great little place to play. Really, real sweaty, really close, really loud. It's, it's where you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it comes across like absolutely. Cause you, yeah, you're right. You can, you, you can really hear kind of individual voices in the crowd and call and response. And, you know, the yeah. guitars are just so satisfyingly crunchy. Like, you know, it, it is wonderful. So, you know, you were continuing on here. Um, the band is the band following through, you know, overseas shows with Frice, um, support from 65 days of static, you know, it was all continuing on yeah. three albums in six years. And obviously you've been in the band longer than that. I mean, needless to say, it's an exhausting experience, but how did it, how was it mentally? Like, because you know, that is such pressure to put on the body, on the mind, you know, to do so much in so little time. It is. And we were like, like I said earlier, we were kind of prolific songwriters and we always have been. Yeah. So for every, every single we did in the early days, I think we did three or four, b-sides to each one you know and we wrote so many songs and that, that's that's what we enjoyed doing as a band we were the the five of us at that time were just so creative with each other and and it was it felt it felt very easy to write songs um and obviously that for every song we wrote there was probably four others that we kind of threw in the bin you know so we were just we just wrote a lot of songs all the time. And I think that was, what is that uh, album every two years or something? Yep. Plus touring plus B sides and stuff. I, I suppose it is quite a lot, actually. I hadn't really thought about it in that way. Um, but again, it, it felt just like it felt, it felt fine at the time. I, I didn't, I personally didn't feel any pressure and I don't think the rest of the guys did either really to, um, we were doing something we loved and I think that we felt very, very fortunate actually that we were able to do it, you know, to be, to be in a band that, 
that you're doing it for a living it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like very hard work to you know when when your job is to go and write songs and then go play them in front of people it's it's the dream isn't it yeah and so i i personally didn't feel much pressure uh on the road or in the studio i, I thought it was i thought it was just a really good time <laughs> really good time to be alive Back with Colin again, and we begin by speaking about the band's extraordinary live album, Live at the Lemon Grove, before getting into the development of Kill Your Own. Is it around this time there were some gigs that were used for Live at the Lemon Grove? Was it around this tour? Um, I think that was later that year, um, and it was literally, yeah, just the Lemon Grove. So it wasn't like a tour. We Oh, it wasn't just, yeah, it wasn't cultivated. Yeah, yeah, it was actually all just filmed at the Lemon Grove. I seem to remember actually as well, because I do remember that after that night, the next day, I pretty much lost my voice. I got really sick. And I think the Lemon Grove show was when my body was like, yeah, I'll let you get through this, but don't think you're doing much more afterwards, mate. I seem to remember that just feeling terrible for like the last three or four shows or something. Yes, that was in Exeter. That was the 23rd of November, 2004. And yeah, there was a Falmouth, Cardiff and Milton Keynes show the next three days after. Yeah. 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 I remember like Falmouth starting to feel really, really bad because my dad was at that. And I literally remember in Cardiff being just on the tour bus trying to just, I don't know, just not, I'm not going to, don't worry, I don't do man flu or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting there thinking, do you know what? I really just need to stop. And I remember my friend Simon came to meet me in Milton Keynes and I was literally on the stage that night, Milton Keynes, just probably in a ball most of the <laughs> most of the show, literally just trying to get through it and yeah. without sounding horrible to the crowd, but in my head, just yeah. hoping it would end. And then he drove <laughs> me home and I probably died for about two to three days before emerging. I think everybody gets it every now and then. You just get this kind of tour lurgy. And when you're on a tour bus, it hasn't really got anywhere to go. Mm. so I think you just end up sort of uh, but I do remember Cardiff sitting I think oh man I do not feel good and then the Milton Keynes I just wished it would end I mean um, that, that live at the Lemon Grove though that's a fucking terrific live record like that it really captures you like the production's amazing yeah it turned out right I think Larry might have had something to do with mixing it and stuff and, and whatever but um, it was really cool it was a fun show um, I think it came across pretty well uh, and we all had a good time so yeah no complaints, really. <laughs> Talking of live records, any off the top of your head that you personally cherish, just as a fan? Well, Faith More Love of Brixton. Yeah. Simple. Incredible. Um, and you can either watch that on DVD or on YouTube, um, or, you know, download it on from your, your favourite platform. But, yeah, just that was kind of the one for me. And I think, actually, because I was sort of watching it back in sort of the early 90s on VHS and that was kind of one of those things I think that really sort of helped cultivate me as a performer as well. Because, like, you know, not trying to sing as well as Mike Patton, but the way that sort of Mike Patton was really good at being able to be really physical on stage, but also without sort of compromising, you know, the, the quality of his singing. That was a really big thing for me. And it did take me a while to learn that. And you'd have a chat with the band and stuff, and they'd be like, you need to calm down a bit tonight, Colin, because your singing's not too as good as it could be <laughs> because uh-huh. you're too busy jumping about. So you have kind of have to sort of learn to manage how you are on stage with the performance, with your physical performance to, you know, to rock out because you want to rock out. And you have to do that obviously with the, the technical ability that you're supposed to be showing as well. And Mike Patton was really good in that video to like, right, okay, that's kind of what you need to be doing. And 
you know, I used to quite like bands like Pantera, but Phil and Sam, I was always out of breath, mm. you know, and then you go to bands again, like Pearl Jam, where Eddie Vedder's rocking out, but singing so well. Yes. You know, and it's it's things like that, that you, you can like the bands because I love the bands, I love Faith More, I love Pearl Jam, to just have that ability to be able to perform as well as sing really well. You know, Deftones had it as well. Gino Marino, you know, really good. And those were bands that you would look at and go, do you know what? They're nailing both sides. And that, to me, was always what made a great performance. So that's what you sort of tried to take like to, to every every show you played. So this concert, just one final thing on Live at the Lemon Grove, obviously draws heavily from your first two records throughout the time, but you were teasing a few songs, one or two from Kill Your Own. And actually, my personal favourite 100 Reasons song is on here. No pretending. Like I am, I'm crazy about that song. I have to say, I've listened to that song so many times in the last couple of weeks. Like that's just <laughs> such a pile driver, such a force. You know, the was it all a lie and all that sort of stuff. Any thoughts particular on that track before we get to like, kind of genesis of Kill Your Own and the writing of that? Because I, I, I just want to know, not as a podcaster, I just want to hear about this song because I worship this song. We actually had maybe four, three or four iterations of the chorus before we kind of nailed it into what it, it is. Um, I can't remember. I remember when it was like, don't fail, don't fail, stop pretending and stuff like that. There's these different mm-hmm. ideas that we had that we never could quite kind of settle on. And then, and then obviously we did. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that song went through, it, it went through a bit of the mill with the writing process. Actually, most of our songs are written very quickly. Yeah um because you're capturing a moment it's all really good and then you're spending however much time just tightening it up getting the lyrics right getting the melodies tightened up and that kind of thing but the basics of the song are actually there um but no pretending wasn't it wasn't hard work because we all love the song and we kept at it because we knew it could be better but i think it sort of went through sort of multiple sort of iterations but particularly with the vocals on the chorus i remember sort of multiple ideas doing the rounds and stuff and it wasn't quite right and it wasn't quite right um maybe larry might even have some old recordings knocking around on a hard drive somewhere Mm. but apart from that yeah it's a great song i absolutely love it and we used to just really enjoy it It was kind of one of those songs though that was it was always always sort of seemed to be okay live i mean i think the song is really good i think we played it really well but unless the in you know i don't know if um unless anyone sort of jump on our social media and tell us we're wrong, but we never used to get sort of the best vibe from the audience when we played it. Well, I don't know whether that's just because of the type of song that it is and the way that the tempo is. And I don't know. It always yeah. felt a little bit, we always felt that maybe the audience didn't, weren't kind of maybe as into it as we were, but maybe they were just listening because it's quite an odd song. It's a rock song, but is it something that you, 
jump up and down to? Is it something that you have a mosh pit to, or is it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, personally, it's something I scream in the car. Like it always comes up because, like on Spotify, you have your on repeat playlist, which gives you the thirty songs which are rotation, and it hasn't really dropped out of my rotation for the last like month or so as I've been prepping for this. But yeah, sensational track and. On this tour of the UK Barfly venues, you were also giving out a free CD, is that right? Singles Club Free, which had like Feed the Fire on it and some support band tracks. Yeah, I mean, we usually did stuff like that anyway. Um, So it's just a good way of sort of getting music out there without sort of trying to sell it as a single to people. Mm. And I think people appreciate that. And, you know, nowadays it's different because obviously you just upload it onto a streaming platform and it's fine. But back then, a lot of the time, it was like, if you have music out, you're doing it because you're intending for it to chart or something. Whereas we just wanted our fans that had been loyal and were coming to the shows to reward them. And that's a good way to do it. You go, here you go, you're at the show. Thanks so much for turning up. Here's a track. And that's that's just cool. Um, and you can sort of still do that these days. You can do that in a digital form or something because you can still send people to a, a, a private SoundCloud link or something like that. But there's something really nice about going you've been here thank you very much we appreciate it here's some new stuff and again what you're trying to do as well as obviously drive people to talk about it because they hopefully like the song and think it's great and then tell their friends oh it's really cool so you know that's what you do larry returns now to provide some insight into the third album and his role producing it pushing on now i mean undaunted you guys kept performing, yeah. kept writing, and you know spent a lot of 2005 writing "Kill Your Own," which you know mm. is a record where you were the f- first time you stepped in the producer's chair. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Why was that? Was it just by virtue of no one else being around, or I think it was because oh, actually I don't really know. Like I think I wanted to do it. I think I thought I could do it, and I wanted to do it. And I remember chatting with the band about doing it. I think also in, in, in the real, in reality, we were in a situation where we'd been dropped by Sony and we had been signed by V2. V2. Yes. Yeah. And we just had a lot less money as well. You know, those, that, those first two records probably cost 150, 200 grand each by the time we'd gone to New York and paid Sardian. Mm-hmm. To two to of Rick Rubin's engineers and a ridiculous studio for six weeks. Greg Fiddleman, who produces Metallica, he was Greg there, Fiddleman. right? Yeah, yeah, Greg Fiddleman, yeah. yeah, and Greg Gordon, the two Gregs. <laughs> so I think there was probably a bit of necessity in that it was a quite cheap way to make a record, and I was just really up for it. So it just made sense, I think, to to do it. In hindsight, and I give this advice to people in bands now, I'm like, that point you shouldn't produce your own band it was incredibly stressful for me i don't know if it was ideal for everyone else probably not it's not something i'd recommend and i've had that conversation with friends of mine now and people i work with who in bands that are you know at at a a greater level than ours and they're even but they're even on their like fourth going into their fourth record i'm like don't do it yourself you know, get help in as many ways as you can. And I remember that being really stressful. I remember I remember at one point the whole fucking label came down to the studio. We were at the studio in Acton called Core, which at that time wasn't too far from VT's office. And I remember the whole label came down and they were like, well, yeah, we're going to come down for a playback. Like, 
which is insanity. There's no way that I would yeah. put that upon someone now who's in a band who's producing their own band at like in their mid twenties. Be like, yeah, the entire label's going to come down, sit in the control room, and you're just going to play them monitor mixes. <laughs> like it was fucking insane. I remember the stress of that day nearly fucking killed me. <laughs> I remember sitting in afterwards and they all left me like, what the fuck? That was the most stressful thing that's ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's all kinds of things like that that weren't ideal. But I do love the record. Actually, we went. I went to LA and Dave Sardi ended up mixing a few of those. So he did have some, he did do some work on it. I think he mixed three of them. But yeah, like, like there's, there's, there, I'd say that's my second favourite of our records. Yeah, I think that's behind Ida's Above Our Station in the packing order for me. Interesting. Okay, yeah, because... Just from a personal point of view, because, you know, it might not sound as good as the second record. Well, it doesn't sound as good as the second record, but, you know, technically it doesn't. But just from a sense of purpose or from an attitude point of view, it's it's much more my favourite than album two. I will say my favourite 100 Reasons song is on Kill Your Own. Which one's that? No Pretending. You like that one? I love that one. And Colin was surprised that I picked that one as well. He said it had a lot of teething problems as well. But I just think just as a straight ahead bludgeoning rocker. I don't know what it is about that tune, but it's just the one that always stuck with me. It's a bit like Rammstein or Muse or something. Mm. I think we were probably trying to write, I think we were probably trying to write a Muse song. Yeah, yeah, we were doing that. I think it was might have been like you know we've been on tour with them. That was probably what was in our heads. Yeah, that's not like that's not a song that comes up. We did play it live quite a lot, I suppose. Yes, I think I heard it live at the Lemon Grove initially, and then I sorted out. Yeah, yeah. Kill your own, yeah. Which um, I mean, we haven't even touched on that really. But just quickly, that's a remarkable live record, right? The sound on that is great as well. Yeah, I I absolutely love it, and it's definitely like one of my my favourite behind the first one for sure. Much as. I don't relish the memories of making it. I do I do think it's a good record. And also, that was the last one with Paul. And so that was the last time we had his input on music, which I think... Um, what's the song that I think... Is, like that, This Mess, is, which is one of my favourite 100 Reasons songs, which is definitely a bit of a left-field weird choice, I would say. Mm. But I, I love that song. And Paul the oral guitar player does a like hit the vocal he doesn't ignore us i think it's great which is actually a lyric that i wrote that he sung because i couldn't sing it very well but yeah i i, I really like that tune We join Kyle again now for more Kill Your Own Chat and Paul leaving the band he was signed for v2 records that was in september of 2005 Okay, if you say so. I, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I don't want to be the authority on that, but, I, but I'm pretty sure. But, but how, did, how did that sort of come about? Um, again, I think it was just sort of finishing up with Sony and then writing a shed load of... I would, I would argue that Kill Your Own at the moment is the best record we've made. Mm. And I think that, again, I think we got a little bit of, you know... we we had a little bit of that couldn't care less attitude back again. We were just writing really, really well. It was just a really good experience, a really good time, you know, sort of just, again, just, I think, I think the thing as well is that when you sort of do your first record and people will say this, this is not a new saying, but everyone says you've got forever to write the first record because you have, right. And what you want to make sure is that when you come out the starting gate, that it's the best it can be. 
but then what you're doing is you start to fall into the album cycle. So when you go to do the next one, you're not feeling any less creative. You're not struggling to write or anything like that. But, you know, you've got to get it done by a certain time because something else has got to happen and something else has got to happen. And then once you're sort of out of that deal, you're sitting thinking, well, I haven't got to worry about when the record's coming out again. So let's just go in and we'll just write. And we wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was amazing. We wrote some of our best songs and you know um sort of came together to to be a great record in my opinion as well i think there's one song on there that i actually do not dislike but i just think recording wise didn't maybe come out it didn't sort of seem to just quite work in the studio which sometimes happens any any band will tell you that right but that doesn't didn't make it a bad song it was just a little bit could have been a bit better if we had a bit more time actually recording but um the album's amazing i love that record which, which song's that? Oh, blimey. I have to remind myself now, aren't I? I'll tell you in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Don't uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't say no pretending. That'll just, uh, yeah, that'll annoy It definitely me. wasn't no pretending. <laughs> no, I know. It was Destroy. It was Destroy. Destroy. Okay. That's what it was, which is a great song, and I really like yeah. it. But again, it was one of those ones that we really sort of, I think, sort of struggled to write it, to sort of get it to sound good, like properly. If You know, you have an idea in your head, but it doesn't seem to be, getting to that point <laughs> so you have a little bit of that sometimes and how was it larry uh, stepping up to production chair um there was no one else to do the job um <laughs> i think i think larry just become good enough by that time you know he'd been doing a few other bands at the time i seem to remember him doing a record with a band called my awesome compilation mm. he'd done a few other things We'd actually been doing our demos for the second record with Larry because he'd been learning Pro Tools. So when it came down to it, um, you know, there was nobody that would do it for the price that they would have done it for regardless. <laughs> but luckily, you know, even at that point, he was just turning into a really good producer. And also, I think he felt, you know, we had we, we talk about this all the time, actually, not like as in that particular recording period, but when we've had sort of like, recording and you know he he feels as precious over it all as we do as well he, he he is the producer and we respect him as a producer but he's also your bandmate as well and I think for him you could argue that at a point it was a struggle to sometimes sort of I suppose change from role to role if that makes sense but mm. that doesn't mean to be a slight on Larry because he did an amazing job with the production because some you know I would never turn around and say to my producer, you know, like, F off, mate, what are you thinking? You know, so on and so on and insult the guy. But I would do that to Larry. <laughs> um, but, but you know, the thing is, is whenever we sort of argued in the band, we normally argued because it was over the creative process. But the banter that you had would allow you to, you know, Larry can turn around and go, mate, what are you doing? That's a pile of old crap, you know. Mm-hmm. But as a producer, he wouldn't be like that. He, you know, he'd be that professional who goes, okay, Colin, well, let's look at this and how do we fix it? Do you know what I mean? So that was the only thing that I wouldn't even call it a difficulty actually, because the the recording process of that record had a few, you know, just like everything else, it always doesn't, doesn't go smoothly every single day, but on the whole, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And yeah, I was very happy with Larry's production on that record. I think it sounded incredible. And what is the, album cover i mean moving away from the building's theme it's kind of like an ominous jellyfish to me but what's the meaning it it went a bit sort of sea life um (laughs) and in fairness i'm not really quite sure i fully understand the concept of it myself i think it was just 
getting these kind of different i mean the thing for us is it's not necessarily that you always have to have a meaning behind it mm. but it was just the, the theme of it and and these things that are sort of quite i always find that the strangest creatures generally are living in our oceans yes you know i mean just the other day you know you watch like an octopus and you're like wow look at that creature that exists on our planet right that is incredible um and then there's even sort of crazy stuff that exists you know in our oceans and and things like that so for me just sort of looking at that sort of concept and that sort of theme it's just something that's really interesting for me when i'm sort of looking at things visually i i it's nice to look at something and not sort of be bored of it and think that that's something that's now sort of ran its course so to speak when you've looked at it so much there's always something whenever i sort of look at the artwork that's to do with that particular sort of album cycle it's always interesting to look at and it's kind of to me there's always kind of something new to kind of notice and in fairness i haven't looked at it for quite some time but also to go back to it i'd probably still be interested in it again i just find it interesting um so yeah i'm not always into sort of what you might call deep meanings behind things sometimes it's nice if you can do that but for that i just think we liked the style of it thematically and i think that sort of came from i think it came from one of the art guys at v2 who i'm sorry i don't know the name of but be on the inlay i'm sure but um you know it was just it just i just looked at it and thought that's that's really cool so the record was released and one of the things that i want to ask you about i mean the record was released uh, 20th of march 2006 like there's a lot of references in a lot of interviews to the message board which I can't access. It seems to be in the Wayback Machine somewhere. I can't, you know, I wanted to Probably. get my hands on it. Uh, it's somewhere there. Like, was this something you were aware of? Because it seems like the members did post on there and answer questions and stuff. Did you survey that or? Well, I think we actually did. When we were on the 100 Reasons website at the time and it had a message board, we would we would be active on it. Yeah. I think it's only right, you know, if you've got oh, yeah. the time. You know, there's there's a thing at the moment in the music industry where and the Music Managers Forum were talking about it at the Great Escape um, a few weeks ago, month ago, whatever. And it's about sort of what we're calling digital burnout, where artists are kind of being asked to spend so much time on social media to promote themselves that it's kind of at the expense of them being creative. Mm -hmm. um, and managers are really struggling with it as well because they're trying to say to the artists, this is what you want to do. And a lot of labels at the moment are just obsessed with TikTok. And that does work for some artists, absolutely, but it's not going to work for everybody. But for some weird reason, some labels are like, well, it doesn't matter what you do, you've got to be on TikTok. Yeah. Um, at least for now, until that falls by the wayside in the next few weeks. But at that time, it was still sort of a fairly sort of new thing. So if someone comes on your message board, you pop in, you can hear about, you just say what they're saying, and you respond to them. And that's just what you do. Um, now, these people have spent time with you, spent time with your music and stuff, and they've taken the time to write something. Um, I don't recall seeing anything too bad on there, if I can remember correctly. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but maybe that's just me filtering out the bad. Um, but from that perspective, you know, you, it wasn't a hard thing to do. You know, you're in a full-time band. Oh, you're not a rehearsal today. So, or you're not writing today. So, okay, just pop on your laptop, do a bit of a surf. Oh, someone's on the message board and they posted that. All right. So you'd respond. And around this time then, around the release of the record, you were touring with a band that I'm a huge fan of. I didn't realise you guys toured with these. 65 Days of Static. Yes. Well, they're incredible. Mm, truly. They're just like stupid incredible. And I think it probably took me two shows to get them, if that makes sense, because they were so out there at the time. Um, but they're just brilliant. 
Yeah, I mean, again, you know, we were just lucky enough to be on the road with a band like that and have them be with us. You know, it's those kinds of things are sort of like, that's what's great about it. You know, you're not just going out and playing music that you've made and people are coming to see you play. That's amazing. But going out with bands that you actually really like, that's kind of what you call the privilege. And it's always like the joke about, yeah, get torture every night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah, just just incredible. What can I say? And you know, such a long time ago, I don't, I don't remember sort of interacting with them too much yeah. at the time, in fairness. Um, but just watching them play and listening to their music, I'm just sort of blown away by that. But yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> long time ago. No, of course, no. It, days of static, indeed. I, I appreciate that. And um, something you may remember a bit more clearly, Paul left the band in August of two thousand and six. He did. I seem to recall we were in Swansea, actually. We were doing like some end of summer university ball. I think Idlewild were playing. Mm. And Rachel Stevens from S Club 7, oh. I believe, was there. And she okay. kind of just went on mime for three songs and went home. <laughs> um, I think Paul just was, we were just in the van. And we hadn't even played before we played. And he just said, yeah, I'm kind of done. And I can't, I don't know whether I saw it coming or not. But I don't recall being massively surprised i mean i don't want this is the thing really i don't want to get into trying to speak for paul because that's just not fair and that's not right so the only thing i would say is if i remember correctly i don't i don't recall being overly surprised that he'd made that decision and i think maybe at the time from a personal perspective i wasn't massively upset by it either and obviously he did the courtesy of not sort of telling the world he told us first and then the idea was that, you know, we'd then sort of manage how he's leaving and we had some show commitments and stuff and things like that, you know, but he kind of, I think before then, I think he'd very much sort of made up his mind. Um, but I don't recall myself sort of going, oh, Paul, please stay, Paul, please stay. And maybe I just thought maybe his heart wasn't in it. And for me to ask that just might make it and prolong it and make it more difficult. Because I think sometimes if someone's trying to do something you know, which is quite a difficult decision. You're effectively leaving a relationship, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's and by the time you've come to that point, it's not something that Paul was doing out of anger. He wasn't, we weren't in the middle of a band row or anything like that. And there was, you know, fuck you and whatever. You know, he thought about it for quite some time. And I think he felt for him at that point, you know, it was, it was the right thing to do. So, yeah, it was a bit of a bombshell because... I don't think I was surprised, but I don't think I was expecting it either. And I suppose really maybe you weren't expecting it in a van before a show in Swansea. <laughs> maybe it'd be like a sit down at a rehearsal or, you know, you sit down, you have a band meeting and you do it all that way and go, look, I've just got something to say, guys, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we went on and played the show. Um, and we all went home, I guess. I guess, unless you can tell me there was another show afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Larry would say about Paul's departure that he was just over being in the band, which is a perfectly fair yeah. enough reason. And I mean, I think so. Yeah. I mean, something that we, something that with 100 reasons of is like, and I don't even mean this in a horrible, I think when we're together creatively, we literally, I, I believe, we're fully a force to be reckoned with. But, you know, when you spend that much time with another human being, you know, you're on tour with this person, you're recording records with this person, you're, practicing with this person you're spending so much time with this person you know and these other people that you know you have to get on as best as you can but sometimes when you're sort of 
in it and it's not it's not a traditional job but it's a job because the best part of every day is getting on stage for an hour hour and a half and belting out some songs and have a great time with your mates and when you do that nothing else in the world matters it's amazing it's best feeling ever you know and if I was on stage I looked over Paul great grinning from ear to ear Larry amazing views the Andy it's just an incredible feeling being on stage with those guys but when you've got the other part of the day, which is the hanging around, doing the sound check, you're tired because maybe you've got a bit of jet lag because you've come from somewhere else, you've got press to do. Those are the kinds of things that become sort of more what you might call sort of the, the rigmarole. I mean, it's called the music business for a reason, right? At the end of the day, you're, you're getting to do what you love, but you have to do other things in order to continue to do what you love. Well, that goes away. So mm. I know that, you know, you know, the Andy is always up for an interview. I can be up for interviews sometimes. Sometimes I'm not in the mood, but you do it because you have to. And that's what you do. People a lot of the time want to talk to the singer. Same with Larry. Um, and people want to talk to Paul, you know, and, and some people, that's the bit that doesn't necessarily sit so well. The kind of the, the other side of the job, which is, you know, it's not like it's a bad thing. It's, it's something that you need to do. You need to promote what you're doing to be able to do it. And then, you know, you're away for sort of extended periods of time, you know, and I've been in a situation many, many years ago, long before I'm, you know, with, with my, with, you know, with my wife now, you know, my wife's been with me since, you know, like 2002, you know, and she's always understood what I've done and she's been absolutely incredible and brilliant about it. Um, whereas some other people's partners, maybe not so much. And then you, it doesn't mean they're being horrible, but you can sometimes feel the emotional pull. Um, and when you start to, when you're like six or seven years into doing it and you then you're on the road for like another month or something like that. And at the time, the venues you were playing weren't as big as they were. Um, so, you know, less people were coming to the shows. So that can have an impact. And sometimes you can sit there and think, well, why the hell am I going away for this? You know, why am I going away from this person that I want to be with for a month or something? And then I'm not going to come back with, you know, anything to really justify the time I've been away and I've missed this person and so on and so forth. Um, and that can be a big pull and things like that. So there's lots of other things that kind of come into it. And I don't know whether that was the case for Paul. I remember sitting on a tour bus with him once and I think we were in like Stockholm or something. And he was like, you know, I know why you miss Lucy now, because I think he, at that point in his life, he'd met someone that he truly, truly cared about. So um, this is my wife, by the way. Um, so <laughs> just saying, not, not, not a games console. It's rare or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Great game. Um, <laughs> you know, so those sorts of things potentially start to sort of trickle in. Um, and when you're still going to play, but it's not necessarily, you know, bringing home as much, you know, as you would like it to, um, then, then your priorities can, can shift. So, Again, I'm just want to be really careful that I'm not trying no, to speak no. before because he was the only one that was in it at the time. But those are sort of little things that that I would perceive could have been part of it, if that makes sense. Larry returns now with some more insight into Paul's departure. I've got a quote. I found a quote from you actually speaking about Paul's departure. Um, just stating, quote, he's over being in a band, which is a perfectly fair enough reason. Yeah, he was over being in the band with us. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Paul, like, Paul hated what the band became quite rapidly. Paul, 
grew up as a, as a rock kid in a town where rock kids got the shit kicked out of them by kids wearing white trainers and bomber jackets. And before too long, those kids in white trainers and bomber jackets were at our gigs and right. were dancing to our music. And he absolutely hated it. And as soon as that happened, he lost control of it and we became something that he didn't like. And add to that, some personal issues he had with all of us in the band and he started feeling like a bit of an outsider. He hated what our audience had become and that was I, that's how I see why he left. And you can't really argue with any of those things because if that's, you know, because they're all true if that's your opinion of them then those things were happening and if you couldn't get past that and you can get past that you know he was not the sort of person to that that just being in a band and just being famous or successful or whatever was enough to put up with those things that he really didn't like so fair play to him yeah how did you feel then kind of at this point in the band three records deep five six years in the spotlight as it were did it still have the luster for you uh yeah i mean at that point it sort of turns into a bit of an obsession i don't know whether or not it has the luster or not you're just like how do we keep this going what the fuck else am i gonna do yeah you know Mm -hmm. we we did have the advantage of like like once after we got dropped by sony it was a good it was over a year i think until we got picked up by v2 but because we'd always been quite frugal with money thanks to you know, sensible management. Um, we still managed to pay ourselves, albeit a pittance, but, you know, something yeah. every month until we re-signed again. So we'd never, you know, even after that third record, we'd still, at, at all times since we signed to Sony, had, had been a full-time band and didn't have other jobs, which even, you know, if you, if you compare that to today. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, that is... There were bands touring in front of thousands of people every night that have still got to have at least part-time jobs Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know the bands i work with that are still working it's uh it's 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 not as it's not as easy out there um so that was quite a good thing so i guess even when paul left we were still going we still sort of considered ourselves a full-time concern it still felt professional so you know it was just like let's just carry on there was there was not really a conversation about it it's just what 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 we were going to do And finally, we're talking to a new voice on the podcast. This is Alan Day, promoter extraordinaire. He first shares his story and then how he started working with the band in 2000, a relationship that continues to this very day. So, Alan, like, how did you start promoting? Like, what were the first bands? What were the first what were the first gigs that you were part of? Initially, I began promoting in the late 90s at university when I restarted a rock society, University of Portsmouth Rock Society. Mm. I was president and I basically only just passed my final year academically in economics and geography because I spent all my time organising club nights, uh, (laughs) organising trips to gigs, um, uh, running a fanzine, uh, discount at the Wedged Rooms in Portsmouth and the Pyramids and all sorts of stuff. And I was doing bands like A and One Minute Silence were the two kind of ones that people remember. And then once a month I was doing these shows. And then afterwards, you know, after you finish uni, what do you do? Didn't know what I was going to do. Moved back into my parents in Oxfordshire. Had a job in a local record store, which was really lucky and really cool. Uh, until I knew what my career path was likely to be. 
And then after 18 months in a record store, I met a guy called Dave Hale. He's known also known as Dave Chicken, uh, his nickname. And we started this thing called The Club That Cannot Be Named in Oxford uh, in 2000. And we started this sort of... I met Dave because he was putting on... He was he had this idea of putting on punk and hardcore shows in the Elm Tree. And I was managing, managing, I should say loosely the word, uh, a band called Black Candy. And he was managing a band called Jaw. And he was like, we got introduced to each other. And he said, I'm going to do these monthly nights at this venue, the Elm Tree. And I was like, cool. That's what I did at uni, in my student union. Why don't we do it together? And so I said, we used to put a lot of bands on and I DJ. And give, we gave the night a name. So the people would come, no matter what bloody mm. bands we had on, but just come to the club night. So we came out with this thing, the club that cannot be named. And then after two or three the first gig we did was with Jaw, two hardcore bands called Spine and Primate. Second gig we did was Raging Speedhorn and Jaw. Mm. Third gig I think we did was this punk band. We did Black Candy and Life Skating Barbies and someone else. Then it was Stamping Ground. Then I think the fifth gig we ever did was 100 Reasons in the Elm Tree in Oxford. And uh, my colleague Dave, he knew them. I can't remember exactly how. And we booked them in June 2000 in the Elm Tree. And it was, I think it's the last gig. I think it might be the la- one of, if not the last band that ever played in that pub. Because after we did that show, the venue got shut down and we had to go, oh, where are we going? Yeah. We, we ended up moving all the PA. The guy that had the PA, we helped him move it and we helped him build a stage in a venue called the Wheat Chief in Oxford. And then we carried on from there. But that was the first time I knew of 100 Reasons and um and we met and we and uh dave booked it via uh mark pycraft and um that was that and the the the, the funniest thing about that story is i think the band know me from oh yeah that gig at the elm tree and uh i didn't even go because it clashed with iron maiden at earl's court oh damn so brave, I, like, brave new world era like brave new it was brave new world it was yeah, the first time we played in london with with back with bruce and uh and adrian how, you know, yeah and uh, as i was in my we were in our early 20s promoting gigs we managed to clash it and dave was like it doesn't matter i'm not going to that and the gig sold well we sold out and we didn't do tickets then it was pound the door and yeah. we still had you know the venue sold out for 100 reasons and then I didn't even go. It was brilliant. <laughs> I love to admit that sometimes because nowadays I, I'm still, uh, luckily, since those days, I'm, I've been promoting ever since yeah. in some capacity. And um, I, I'm always very honest um, about wh- when I can't go somewhere or where I've been. But yeah, I didn't go. That was, yeah, then, that, was the, that was the 16th of June in 2000. That was their 19th gig, according to their website at the Elm Tree. Wow, see, and, you've, you've been doing your research. Yeah, I've been doing a bit of research. And like... <laughs> It's such a mindfuck for me, Alan, because yeah. as I said to you off air, I, I used to live in Oxford for five years. Yeah. Recently, obviously, a long time after this. But I lived just above Atomic Burger on the corner, which I don't think it was there at the time, but it was no. opposite um, the Big Society, which is what the Elm Tree became. So the Elm Tree yes. was an Asian restaurant for many years. Then it became this pub yeah. called the Big Society. And you mentioned the Wheat Sheaf there. That's somewhere yeah. that I went to regularly because the Oxford Imps 
the improvisational society would do gigs there yeah. and you know so all this stuff about the Oxford scene is so fascinating to me personally but I think I've seen you talk about the Zodiac as well as being a kind of important venue in Oxford which became yeah, so, the academy right yeah so you know the trajectory 100 reasons at the time kind of followed um our trajectory as promoters mm. in a way not to talk about me and Dave but we were oh. promoting hardcore shows and we did shows at the Wheat Chief with from everyone from Sponge to Vacant Stare to, uh, uh, I can't remember, to Profits to m- many more. And then we, we, then we, I rang up the Zodiac and I said, Hey, I can, I, you've got this basement room at the Zodiac. Um, it, it's got, you've got this basement, you've got a kind of stage that build this, make the stage a bit better and put a little barrier on it. And you've got a 250 capacity gig as well as the main room upstairs. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So you've got your 450 room upstairs, downstairs, turn this into a gig instead of just your disco. And then they were like, oh, yeah. And I said, let me hire it. And eventually, they were, initially, they were like, oh, I don't know about that. Then they let me hire it. And one of the first gigs I did downstairs in the Zodiac, which became quite an infamous venue, uh, was 100 Reasons um, when they started to take off. And um, we did, um, yeah, we did downstairs at the Zodiac. And at that point was one of the first times I got told by the band and by Mark, um, yeah, you need to contact our agent now. And I was like, agent? What do you mean? <laughs> I, don't, I just want to deal with you guys. I just give you the cash and the night. And like, no, 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 yeah. you need to deal with your agent. And then I ended up speaking to this guy called Rad. Um, yeah, and- yeah, we've spoken to him on the show. Great guy. Yeah. yeah, and he's now at a company called X-Ray. And he's now one of my, a really good friend of mine. And I've worked with him now, what, 20 years now, over 20 years. And we've worked together on loads of bands. But um, And we still, we I, I booked the current 100 Reasons Tour with Rad. So what did you make of them initially? Like you're mentioning all these bands from the past. And obviously the majority yeah. of them don't go on to the success that they do. Did did you yeah. see something in them? Like, did they stand out or? Yeah, I think at the time there was a wave of, um, you know, similar bands. It was Get Up Kids, Jimmy Eat World, Rival Schools. Mm. Um uh, band like Grade, um, God, Boyce's Fire, uh, a lot of these bands we put. I, lo- I love all these names. I've got to research some of these names. Yeah, yeah some of them I've heard of. But like, and, uh... and I was obsessed with Hot Water Music as well. A lot of them, basically, a big wave of American kind of hard. Yeah. Or people call it post hardcore. I don't, I don't really, you know, I'm not really into genres, but the, you know, so, but there was that whole wave of stuff. And then in the UK, Hundred Reasons were kind of like the the not you know they kind of took that vibe and created the new British version almost of it mm. and you know and like but it was it was hard rock but with an edge and singing which I always talk about because even to the day when I get new stuff I'm like. Is it Cookie Monster or not, or is it you know, or is it singing? <laughs> you know, and um, and it was just, it was just, you know, it, it it struck us, it struck me like straight away. Wow, this is like modern. It's rock music. It's it's play it driving a car. It's vo- it, the vocals are insane. And then you know when the, when you saw them live, it was just all action. You know, um, and Colin's hair. You know, everything sure. about it, you know, I mean, a lot of people were talking about at the driving at the time, but at the same time, yeah, you know, the reasons were were, were, were as, as great and as that band, I think, you know. And moving, I mean, these early gigs then, 
Like yeah. that, that must have been so exciting for you to be privy to, I suppose, the rooms expanding and the crowds growing. And Yeah. I mean, like the, the, after we did downstairs at the Zodiac, they came through and did upstairs at the Zodiac. I remember when I had the, uh, I, I had the, the T-shirt that, that I think I stupidly threw out when I had a clear out when I left Oxford. It was, I'll, I'll find you, big green T-shirt. It was in that extra large. Oh, nice. It was all they made at the time. And now I'm like, oh, no, no, I made a killer vest. And because uh, I did all my old T-shirts, sort of baggy, I just turned into the vest now and they look cool. But right. no, I, I remember when we did upstairs at Zodiac the first time and uh, just as... Um, I think it was just before the first album came out when I find you was um it, I think it just hit the top 40. I think it might have been 38 or something but it was a massive deal for a rock band then and uh, a British rock band and especially when the charts I mean, nowadays no one knows it's in the charts right? No no that yeah that was the 11th of May and they played with a band called Douglas apparently I don't know if you remember those. Wow so you've done the uh, yes that was the show and we yeah. did them and Douglas and then um and then uh the next time we did them in the same venue we had the infamous, um, it was them and Ru- I think it was them and Ruben. Um, mm. And um, Ruben played. And then we had one of my, uh, I always talk about this gig, because then we had a power cut. And, yes. Uh, and uh, there was a power cut. And uh, <laughs> um, it, and I'm one of these people that um, when my gigs are on, I really, I, I believe I'm, a, I'm good at my job because I'm the audience. As mm. much as anybody else, I really, you know, uh, uh, care about the audience. Mm-hmm. And um, so power goes off and I'm like, what's going on? And we, we had some emergency lighting that come on, but no PA because there's no power. And I'm like running around and I'm like at the front door with a manager, the venue. What's going on? What are we going to do with the power? This is the streets out. I'm like, what are we going to do? When's it coming back on? No one knows. Right. So I go right back up the stairs. The venue is on the on the first floor up the stairs and I'm like with a band it's like I'm gonna have to go on stage and tell everyone what's going on so I go on stage and I shouted at 400 people because of the APA and said right we're trying to fix it there's a power cut on the street blah 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 blah. and then um eventually got a hold of the electricity company and they said it's going to be hours and this is after keeping the people 40 minutes waiting Mm. so I went went back in the dressing room with a band and said right guys I need to go back on stage and tell everyone this is off and they've got to go home. And please don't let me go on the stage on my own. Come on stage with me. <laughs> and they were like, and they were like, they were like, wow, yeah, we've got you, we've got you. Yeah. Uh, and then they walked on stage with me, and then we we made an announcement that the gig's off. Um, but if you can come back, we'll play on Sunday. And what was really cool about that story was they had a day off. At the time for me, I was self-employed. And having a gig go down um, was financially not great because mm. you know, I was open to, a, you know, obviously everyone was entitled to a refund. So, But the band said, we've got a day off on Sunday, two days later. So if the gig's available, we'll come back and play for free. And so we rescheduled it at four, to 48 hours later and they played on their day off and turned up and we ran the gig again and nearly everyone came and it was fantastic. But you know, that was a story that, um, yeah. Just yeah. A, that was, that was 2005. Yeah. That was yeah. the 20, 21st of November. The, the, the Sunday yeah. gig. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. Ruben was there twofold and Dave house as well. I don't know if you recall those bands. Yeah. 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 Twofold. Mm. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that was the, when I used to, when I promoted them at the time, um, I was just a promoter in Oxford, um, Oxford, we branched out into Reading and Northampton, but I wasn't mm. like, what, uh, where I work now, where I book nationally around the country. 
But uh, yeah, so I booked them then. That that was their. I'm just going on their website. They have the list of all their gigs there. Yeah. So that that was like you know their 300th and 12th gig or whatever. And as wow. we discussed, you know, yeah. you were there at the Elm Tree four years before their 19th gig. You know, it's yeah. quite incredible how hard touring they were at that point, isn't it? They were just constantly on the road. Yeah, yeah, and they they you know they drove it all the way to playing Brixton Academy. Um, yeah. Uh, which was incredible and um they they were ride, riding a wave alongside like funeral for a friend um cool my mind is going blank but you know uh, they were riding that wave and they took it all away well a as well at the time got to Brixton academy didn't they Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know and then um we went from there and what about going through then so 2004 this is shatterproof their second record yeah. you know obviously they had the incredible high of ideas and then getting into kill your own like were you just kind of whenever the gigs were popping up in your area working with the band did you just have that continual relationship with them in a way yeah yeah we we we, we they didn't um come through oxford as much then uh because they were bigger mm. than the venue we had um uh, we had the university or we had the the Zodiac, but we didn't do that so many shows. And it wasn't until later on I joined um, a company called Kilimanjaro in 2008. Um, and um, when that, uh, my boss started that, and I, I was kind of um, left from being a promoter in Oxford to uh, moving to London and booking shows across right. the country. And then that was when... Um, so I, I, when the band decided they wanted to do some a comeback, they were like, "I'm not sure about their original promoter in London." I have to be careful what I say. He's a great guy, <laughs> but, the, but the, at the same time, I think he wasn't so worried. But the band were like, oh, "Alan was our biggest fan, and not he was a guy. He was a guy." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you know, can we, uh, can we work with Alan? And um, I got a phone call that they wanted to me to organise their shows where we did. Um, 10 years of um, ideas above. Yes, yeah, so you kind of you kind of worked as part of Sonosphere, is that right? Yes, I was one of the, um, uh, me and my boss and our, our team at Kilimanjaro created, created Sonosphere, yes. Um, wow. I was, uh, so my boss, Stuart Galbraith, uh, met me because he was, he, he'd left Live Nation, he was uh, the head honcho in the UK at Live Nation, and I uh, was one of the people he set up Download Festival and he left Live Nation because he wanted to be for various reasons I, I shouldn't mm. uh, divulge into, but he wanted to be more independent um, and set up the independent company, which we are still Kilimanjaro. And he was setting up Sonosphere and I got a job with him because whilst he knew Metallica and Iron Maiden, he didn't know his Mastodon from his hundred reasons, from his stick <laughs> to his periphery to his uh lacuna coils you know mm-hmm. so um i got the job with him and i helped i i helped um stuart and um as a team we booked um yeah we booked four of the biggest rock shows that's happened in the uk at nebworth um sonosphere yeah so yeah which was great so, yeah, it's, yeah i was doing a little bit of searching around and larry was actually quoted speaking about you and he says, right. quote, uh, when our shorts wearing, crowd surfing, festival promoting comrade Alan Day came up with yeah. a slot for us, we just couldn't say no. So, I mean, yeah, clearly a lot of affection in the camp for you. Yeah, well, I've kind of eased off a little now, but, you know, I am famous for um, many. I always I always say uh, um, if you want to get uh, your band's respect, be seen buying the merchandise, not blagging it and yep. be seen coming over the barricade. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, and then, uh, yeah. then I had a, but I've, I've had to be a bit more careful. I think every too much is on video nowadays, and I'm like, oh no, sure, I'm going to get, sure. get caught somewhere jumping off something. And um, but yeah, so so when the band, um, you know, I'd be the first one in the in the mosh pit uh, at their shows. Um, what are your memories of the? of them at sonosphere any 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 recollection well the 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 memory goes back to when larry was um so that was after we'd done the comeback shows and we're in um i was in so we did these comeback shows uh in 2012 Mm. that i organized and um they were the last shows that was it last shows debut album in full bang and then i'm in this uh I um I'm at the O2 Arena. Um I had um uh, not bragging, but I had nine inch nails playing at the O2 Arena. And I'm in the after show and Larry comes up to me at the bar. And this is like two years after the last shows. He's like, Alan, Alan, why don't why aren't we playing Sonosphere? I said, Well, because you split up, we promoted just splitting up shows. You know, no one's asked me. I don't even know you're how do I how do I know you're a band? We're not a band. But we were, we, but we could be. <laughs> and I was there going, and I, and I, by this point, I was a bit, bit, you know, triumphant. Just done yeah. this massive gig. I'm about three or four beers in. It was about, well, I don't know, one a.m. or something. I said, right, and I tell you what, I actually knew we had a slot to fill, and it was basically that's the, the, at their level and the money and everything. I said, mm. right, this is how much it is. Confirm it by Monday. And he went, what? Really? I said, yeah. <laughs> they confirm it you, you know it's friday night i want it, it tell me by monday if you can do it and you can do it and then, and then they went then by monday we had the phone call yeah yes, we're in <laughs> and so it went from like we were having a um uh a big moment going how are we gonna fill this slot well we still got this slot to fill and then um yeah it's often what happens in the in in our business you know you get stuck and then you end up in some bar somewhere and then someone goes oh then it it all clicks you know so that's when that clicked and um they played on the second stage um and uh the massive audience because we used to flip-flop stages and uh it was it was yeah it's very it's a proud moment you know um any of the bands that i've worked with for so long i mean all, all the shows i book i'm proud of but when especially you know when there's people you've known for so long you know um mm. i did a gig last week with uh the, it's sort of similar it's a similar scene um i didn't mention their name earlier but um sick mm. the the tech rock band and i just did their 20th anniversary electric ballroom and it was like i sent all my friends that band it was when i was in oxford they were one of the bands alongside 100 reasons earth tone nine um sponge um uh, cap down all these, you know, they helped me. It helped me get to uh, be a promoter, you know. So um, yeah, there's there something about the band. You were putting an advert about them in Kerrang uh, due to unexpected oh, yeah, demand. Is that right? That's brilliant. So the, the advert in Kerrang. So when we, um, so this was before Sonosphere, right? right. Um, and we in 2012 we did the. I was asked to do the comeback shows, which was really cool. And me and Rad booked them, and I booked the forum and Manchester Academy and. Um, and there was one more. I can't remember. It might be Scotland or it might be Birmingham. But we we booked the shows, and then on the um, Friday morning it went on sale. I was you know I got up at like nine a.m. I'd look. We, we no no one even the band were expecting not we had no idea how it would sell. Mm. We were like, and this was before social media was sort of so big. Yeah, yeah. get a vibe. 
So we just put it on sale. I'm sort of sat in my, I was renting this flat at the time in um, Camden and I was just sat in my, you know, the, the, the good you know, breakfast TVs on 9am, you know, I just sat having my coffee and then I went, it was like 10 past nine. I was like, oh, damn, 100 Reasons went on sale. Oh, I wonder if it sold any tickets. And I looked on, I looked on my login, I had a login to the, uh, see tickets and I'm looking on it and I'm like, oh, zero, zero, zero. Oh, it hasn't done any tickets. So I, damn. And I looked again, I was like, Oh no! Oh wow! It's all sold out. It's like it's not zero, zero tickets left. Not zero <laughs> tickets sold. And then I'm I'm ringing the office. Go. What about the other outlets? What's going on? And he's like, Oh, and it's absolutely flown out the door. And I'm on the phone to Rad, going, Oh my god! I think we're going to sell it out in half an hour. Well, how many tickets does the band need for their guests? Oh my god! We need to we need to sort this out. And um and we ended up selling it out in less than an hour. Oh. And um. I, I was and then because we weren't expecting it, I couldn't get another date at the forum which we were playing in London. So the um, the Coronet was uh, a venue, and they were uh, in Elephant Castle. I think they, I don't know if they knocked it down yet, but they're on about it. And at the time, they were badgering us for shows, like, "Oh, could do a show in here, do a show in here." And I was like, rang them and said, "Right." if you've got this day on the first day before the, the the forum, I've got a show for you now, now, now. And we managed to add the second show. So what we did is it, we did an advert that went in Kerrang magazine and I put on it due to unexpected demand, extra show at the common <laughs> and, uh, I sent it off to the band and uh, the, the management, everyone, you know, around mm-hmm. and the, the agent. And uh, I thought I was going to get, I thought I was going to get, oh, come on, Alan, you're joking. Yeah. Because normally when you do things like that, people will take it too seriously. And I got a massive, this is amazing, this is amazing. I was like, yes. And uh, I wish I still had the advert. I don't know where it went. But no, I probably, uh, I probably yeah. got a copy on a hard drive somewhere. But um, yeah, so there, yeah, we did that due to unexpected demand. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. And then um, the shows were crazy. It was unbelievable. You know, so yeah. And I, I guess, guess finally, then, just to you know, looking ahead to the shows yeah. that are coming up, we're recording this just towards the end of the year, twenty twenty three, end of Feb, early March. The Bristol date just sold out, and I'm sure the rest will follow suit. I mean, it, it it must be so exciting for you, so gratifying to be working with Rad, planning these shows with this band, and also, you know, for the response to be so rapturous. Like, you know, these tickets are really flying out. Yeah, I think sometimes it's when you book a show and you book a look. I can't hide it; it is a comeback. And you just don't know. But we had an inkling. I had an inkling. This is several bands that I, I, I kind of say that music, it, it, it's not a, it, with streaming services, the music does the talking and then music comes through. It's not about you can throw major label money at everything. But in 10 years time, the songs will filter through yeah. and people will you, you they will they will get to people. And I think that the band have grown, their legacy has grown. And I think that there's, uh, we're obviously going to have all the old, you know, the old diehards out, but I think there'll be a whole new young, load of young people in as well. Yeah. And it's really exciting to see the, the you know, the sales are, are, are fantastic. And um, they're going to be some of the biggest shows the band's ever done, you know, um, 14 years after the last record, I think it is. And then also to make an album that I'm, you know, I'm lucky to have heard, that is it's just this brilliant it's absolutely mm. brilliant i saw um larry recently uh, um i did a show with symposium uh a couple of weeks ago and larry was there and i said larry this album he says yeah i was like it's insane i was like 
you were good, but you were never as good as this. And he just burst that laughing. <laughs> and I, oh, it's it's so good. I was just, yeah, it's just, so that adds to the whole buzz. And I think when, when, when the songs come out, I think, absolutely. I think a lot of people will agree with me, you know, so mm. um, yeah, it's not just been done as um, a sort of a cash grab or, or something. It's been done properly. And um, they obviously wanted to make music and do some gigs and, you know, wicked you know let's go yeah 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 absolutely and um i guess i guess lastly then yourself like action presents is something yes. you sort of head up is that right yeah i was just um in um i work at kilimanjaro and i do i do a lot of um uh, music everyone i work with everyone from suzanne vega to cannibal corpse uh from the boy band blue to uh bob villain and um oh, I, I love just, bob villain I love Bob <laughs> like, they're so new band in Britain. Yeah, they're fantastic and, um, bands. Yeah, and I but I just decided to you know maybe there's an umbrella or something to create a brand, not a company, a brand that sort of focuses on hard the, the harder the alternative music. And I was in lockdown, and when we were in lockdown, everyone was talking about it was a lot of you know take action for this, take action for that, mm. and Black Lives Matter and action. And I just kept seeing the word, and I just thought a bit like. Kerrang was the noise of a guitar. Yeah. It was like, well, action is the the, the gigs, it, 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 the gigs that I'm putting the brand under is all action. There's mosh pits, there's guitars, there's there's uh, chaos. You know that. So that's where it kind of come about. I was like, so I started this brand called Action Presents, and um, in and we 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 started it. it, it I thought because also I wanted to start something fresh when we came out of COVID. So the first major tour we did uh, as Action Presents was Bring Me the Horizon uh, arena tour um, in, yeah, in 20, last 2021, which was, uh, yeah. So, and going forward, hopefully all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's good. All right, and there we go. That's episode three of Live Fast, Die Ugly, the 100 Reasons podcast. We'll be back just after Christmas for a huge concluding episode, looking at the band's fourth and what seemed at the time final album, Quick the Word, Sharp the Action, and then digging into the disbandment and eventual reunion of this incredible band, looking ahead to the new album and tour in 2023. And if you've enjoyed hearing this podcast and maybe want to hear some of my own work, including other bands that I've spoken to or shows of my own, like my deep dives into Metallica and the BBC classic comedy, The Royal Family, check out TomQuee.com. That's Tom, K-W-E-I.com, links down below. And of course, support the boys too, get sharing the podcast, check out the new album, and until next time, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.